Welcome to this week's Investor Insights. Uh, this is Gavin Ralston. I'm delighted to have with me again Philippe Lespinar. So today's focus will be very much on the bond markets. Philippe and I are sitting in the new studio in one London Wall place. Uh, the last two podcasts have also been recorded here, so I hope our listeners appreciate the much improved sound quality. Turning to the markets, the last few days have seen slightly calmer equity markets after the weaker response to the latest turn in the US-China trade saga. Equities levelled off after their sharp falls of the previous week, but most recently we've seen a shift of focus to the exposure of the big tech names, particularly semiconductor companies, to the dispute relating to the moves by the US government to ban Huawei uh, from US companies. Nonetheless, the S&P is holding on to its gains for the year. It's still up 14 and the Nasdaq, which is tech-heavy, is up over 16%. In last week's call, um, Azad highlighted the fact that European data has generally been coming in stronger than expected. And we saw that again last week with German first-quarter GDP numbers at plus 0.4% for the quarter. The announcement that the US is delaying the imposition of further tariffs on Europe and Japan uh, by about six months also helped European sentiment. The other big event in Europe coming up is the European parliamentary elections at the end of this week. Uh, And speaking of elections, in the last few days there have been election results in Australia and India, and in both cases markets like the outcome. But turning to the bond markets, uh, Treasury yields in the US, which are about 2.4% at 10 years, are at their lowest level now since 2016. We'll come back to the disparity between equities and bonds in a moment. Uh, Inflation break-evens, which is the market's implied forecast for inflation, have also been falling in recent weeks. Then in FX markets, uh, the Chinese currency, the RMB, also remains weak. It's today at 694, still holding above the psychological level of 7, which acted as a floor in 2018. Sterling has also weakened again. Uh, It's now at its lowest level in 2019, as the prospect of the UK leaving the EU without a deal has once again risen. So let's stay with the balance between equities and bonds for a moment. Uh, The two markets, equities and bonds, seem to be sending different signals about what they expect will happen to global economic growth uh, and inflationary pressures. What what, what do you read into that? So what we read into that is is obviously the the bond market is signaling slower growth ahead. Um, So the puzzle is why is the equity market not listening? And yet when we break down the, the equity market's performance at, at the very high level between the cyclicals and defensives, you realize the defensives are, you know, like utilities, um, are at their peak, while the cyclicals and the small caps are actually at their lows. So the internals of the equity market are telling us that the market is also expecting a slowdown. So it's, the, it's more the bond-like equities that are doing well, not the more cyclical and more exposed uh, to this, those that are more exposed to the economic cycle. And the fact that the equity market has been as strong as it has been is largely down to the performance of the the tech sector, which is also why the U.S. has been doing so much better than other markets. But also the tech sector, the Microsoft and so on, uh, the the Amazons and so on, are also the quality companies in the tech sector, if you see what what I mean. They are really the cash generators, Mm. um, and and therefore they are seen as, again, you know, in in the tech, the the more bond-like of the tech tech world. Mm. And, and in your portfolios, how are you positioned in respect of duration? We're pretty much neutral. Um, we, uh, as you know, we've we've be, we've had a short bias for a long while. Um, we've had a, we've had a, an, an inflation bias for for a while. 
partly, you know, predicated upon the Federal Reserve's uh, you know, return to a more stimulative position, um, and the other central banks obviously being out of the market for, for a sustained period. Uh, but of course, the the whole trade balance, uh, the whole trade war, uh, the, the reemergence of the trade war has now changed uh, changed uh, the, the cards materially for us. So we're, we've now neutralized that pretty much. And in terms of risk positioning in multi-sector portfolios in areas like uh, investment grade and high yield relative to... Uh, yeah, I mean we're you know we're, we're cautious on credit as well. Uh, if you look at our credit scorecards uh, from the bottom up, if you will, uh, they're either between a small negative or a big negative, depending on which sector you're looking at. Um, you know, clearly Europe is more defensively positioned than the U.S. That's probably better value there. Um, emerging markets are you know the uh, you have to be very selective. Uh, the, the currency side is very tricky. Um, uh, you know, obviously with the uh, the, the, the as you mentioned, the Chinese one being uh, near that psychological barrier, and all the as- other Asian currencies falling in the, in in its wake. Um, but there are some currencies that have not moved much. Uh, the Russian ruble is completely impervious to what's going on, um, so it's much more linked to oil, and you know, obviously the oil market's been doing better. So there's dispersion. We find opportunities in EM and EM credits. That's probably also the where the uh, the, the valuations are more favourable. And Keith's forecast has been building in the expectation of a cut in Fed funds rates uh, in 2020. The market's now discounting that happening before the end of 2019. Do you, do you think that's likely? Yeah, I mean, the story now is about an insurance cut, i.e. the Fed uh, cutting 25 basis points just to make sure that they haven't over-tightened uh, in the previous cycle. Um, that's unlikely to be the case. They are either going to have to cut more, uh, one, two, or three times, because clearly the economy is weakening. Alternatively, if you follow their their existing framework, they're really the the Phillips curve framework and whatever, which is currently much decried. Um, they uh, they are probably still in a very stimulative position. So the more traditional Fed watchers say, well, actually, the next move is a hike. The market's now saying it's a cut, um, but that's probably the average between two scenarios. As in, you know, mm-hmm. we go back to a gentle hiking move, or we have to cut two or three times because we've tightened too much. So it sounds like the risk for bond markets at the moment is that we get a run of stronger data in the US, which upsets this view that there's a gentle slowdown in the economy accompanied by the absence of inflationary pressures. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, uh, you know, we, the data clearly uh, is you know, the market got very, very bearish about glo- uh, global activity um, and is now you know, getting back to a mode of, oh, well, we're still the economy is okay, but that again, that was with before a renewed tension on on the trade front. Um, and these, you know, these trade barriers, if they do go up, uh, and these tariffs come in, uh, they have very unpredictable outcomes. Um, and also, the Chinese response will have very unpredictable outcomes. So it, they're not as you know, you can't just multiply the tariff, the the amount of imports by the the number, and you say, oh, that a tax increase of X, and then you stay there. Uh, there's a lot of ripple down the value chains, uh, which are very difficult to untangle at this stage. So most likely an increase uncertainty, probably cut investment. And uh, we, we know from the Brexit situation that the investment, corporate investment suffers uh, when you have a big market uncertainty about policy outcomes. Let's move to Europe. Uh, German 10-year bond yields are slightly negative, actually yep. <laughs> slipped uh, below um, Japanese bond yields. Who, who is buying German bonds yielding minus eight basis points? 
Well, probably somebody who can repo them at minus 40. <laughs> so um, if you can buy a bond at minus 10, uh, a 10 year bond and, and repo it at minus fo uh, 40 basis points, you're getting 30 basis point uh, yield pickup. Um, and you're also riding down the yield curve, even though it's negative. Um, and I know it sounds completely uh, counterintuitive and, and possibly crazy to quite a few people. Um, but if you're a financial institution that has access to, uh, to very cheap financing, um, that's why you buy bonds. Um, now, clearly, if that's your best investment idea, that means you've <laughs> you, you're, you're short of, uh, of good prospects. So it's, it's, it's giving you a sense of how bearish the market is about, about Europe's uh, growth prospects, obviously. Mm. And, and obviously tensions coming down on the political side and, and, and you know we've got the Italian situation and so on. So there's clearly tension that, that's brewing there and, and the anticipations, new change, new commission personnel, new you know new landscape. Um, not clear that the new the new uh, the new um, leadership teams will be as uh, you know com as pliant uh, and as uh, as kind as they were with the, the Italians, say or the French. And it sounds like what you're saying is that the Italian situation still has the potential to destabilize markets. It rears its head from time to time, but it never reached the crisis levels that markets worried about 12 months ago. Yes, and, and, and so the question is, you know, why should it be different this time? Um, this time, uh, you will have a, by the time the Italian budget gets submitted in the fall, you'll have a new commissioner. Um, and the previous commissioner allowed the Italians to get away with a lot through their budget. A lot of stuff which, frankly, was not very credible. Um, turned out to be not credible at all. Um, the Italian government hasn't done many of the reforms that it committed to do as part of that budget. And it's now seeking to pick a fight with the Commission on other things, particularly immigration. Um, but finance finances will come up. And so, uh, you know, new personnel, possibly Italian election following the outcome of the European election, a new government in Italy, which may have, you know, which may be pressing for, you know, again, picking a fight with the commission. A new commissioner will have to to, to assert their authority, um, not the outgoing one who's quite happy to let them get away with it. So, um, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in and that front. And the new commission comes into place in September? Yes. Well, so yeah, yeah. So the new parliament will, will obviously to have to pick... Um, and we're changing mm -hmm. the five leaders of the EU institutions in the scope of a few months, right? You're seeing mm -hmm. the president of commission, president of parliament, the head of foreign affairs, the head of the ECB, um, and uh, well, the fifth one. I forget which one. It is. Oh, yes, the head of the council, of course. Donald Tusk gets replaced as well. So you've got, you know, this is the first time we have all five heads of all the institutions changing in literally three months. So a lot of unknowns. But you'd still draw a distinction between the level of risk in Italy, on the one hand, and say Spain. So I know from Bob and Paul that they own Spanish yeah. governments in, in multi-sector portfolios. Yeah, they, I think they, there is there is really no uncertainty in Spain about whether they want to be in the eurozone or not. I mean, Spain's thrown their lot with the eurozone. Uh, it has it has absolutely no history of being eurosceptic, um, and and you might be worried about the situation in Catalonia, but, but it is really a, a, a contained issue to Spain. Um, the, the issue with Italy is we know that there is a, there is currently no plan, clearly no, no, no you know, national, nationwide plan to, to leave the EU, but there's plenty of rumblings about, oh, the euro has been bad for us. Um, now, I, d I don't believe that, but, um, but clearly there's, if enough people end up believing it, and, and clearly the Italian willing to break the rules continuously um, in a very blatant way eventually um, you know it's not clear you can count on the future head of the ECB to do what Mario Draghi did which is mm -hmm. you know um, to, to say well I'll back you up whatever I'll do whatever it takes 
Um, and uh, so again, you have that uncertainty. Um, new commissioner, uh, new head of the ECB, maybe not the same consensus you had before. So we have European parliamentary elections uh, at the end of this week, results coming out on Sunday, ironically attracting far more attention in the UK than they ever did before we decided to leave the EU. There's obviously the risk of a broad swing towards populism in Europe um, across most countries. How, how do you think markets would react to that if that turns out to be the result on Sunday? There will be more so-called populist uh, MEPs, um, some of them will be British, by the way, um, I'm not sure they'll have much weight, um, because they'll, be, they'll, they'll only be there for a few weeks or months, um, possibly. Um, the the true the, the real difference this time is that the uh, the uh, the social democrats and the uh, EPP the European P People's Party the centre right who used to have a combined majority in all previous parliaments will not have a combined majority so they'll have to make an alliance with the uh, the Liberal Democrats and the Greens to form a to form a majority so it's a four four way majority as opposed to a two way coalition. Um, the, the, the populists are very divided between themselves. They're not, they don't agree on anything, frankly, um, and therefore they'll still be at the fringes. They won't have much, they won't be effective as a political force. They'll be noisy, they'll make slow, and, and so on, but it's very unlikely they will shape policy. I worry more about the fact that a four-way coalition, which so far has not been able to define what common ground they have between the four of them, um, will take a long time to find its feet and even define what the narrative is. So if the populists are agitating on the side, even if they're ineffective, they'll make a lot more noise than a, essentially a fairly uh, bland uh, you know, uh, four-way coalition with very little of a common platform so far to form a new government, a new project, and, and so on. And, and the whole narrative is what you know, people are asking for, frankly. So let's go back to the trade wars, probably the number one issue preoccupying markets. As I'd expressed a view last week that a lot of what we're seeing is posturing and that we'll end up with some sort of an agreement at the time of the G20 uh, summit in Japan at the end of June. Uh, and that's probably, it's fair to say, the market consensus. Do you think markets are being overly sanguine about the outcome? Yes, I think the markets are probably complacent um, about what's going on. It's there is now, you know, if, if, after the, the failure of the, the, the current set of talks, um, what appeared very clearly is that the, the Americans were asking the Chinese to change their law, domestic law, um, uh, to prevent uh, patent infringement and, 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 and to protect pr uh, intellectual property. And clearly the Chinese have refused to do that. They've said we can cope, take, take care of this with some regulation and so on, but we're not going to enshrine that into domestic law, which is which was a big demand from the Americans because ultimately without the protection from from the, the, the domestic law in China, they feel that they don't have much protection at all. Um, and the Americans are now saying, well, that's a breach of trust. You're basically, uh, you promised us you'd do something, you haven't done it. Um, I think the dispute is much more now about sovereignty and, and, and frankly, about long-term uh, dominance of the tech space. Um, and my sense is, you know, we've given, you know, this is the kickoff of a very long, very long uh, trade war, which will be much more like the Cold War about influence, about uh, dominance of the, in this case, not so much military sphere, although you could argue there's mm. some military angle to it, but dominance of the technology sphere. Um, and of course, uh, you know, influence on other countries and, and very much so about the Western Pacific.
And it sounds like this is like an abrasive relationship that might stay with us for years. It won't be easily resolved in one meeting. Yeah, I, I, I think you could start calling it Cold War Two. Um, you know, Cold War One was be with the with the USSR. Cold War Two will be with China, probably be less military and much more technology. Uh, based, but nonetheless, it's it is the start of a very long process, which probably won't get resolved for a long time. And how does this play out for the Chinese currency? Mm -hmm. As I said at the beginning, that it's holding above seven. A lot of market participants are worried about the consequence if it drops below seven, start getting capital outflows from China. Do you think the Chinese will be able to, or will be willing to hold a line? I think they're definitely willing, um, partly because they don't. They probably don't want to provoke an additional uh, American response at this time. Uh, yeah, so it's more a psychological thing than, than, a, than, a, than a real factor. Um, so not wanting to provoke the Americans is one thing. The question is you're, you're asking is can they hold the line if you have, uh, if you have a lot of capital outflows? And we know in the past they've been able to hold the line because they can change the rules. Um, I, they, they want their currency to be free-floating, but there's, yeah, there's so far very little direct investment that can flow out. You know, their quotas and so on, they've increased participation. They've entered the global bond market, but at a tiny weight. Um, and so I still, you know, I'm still confident that they will not want to uh, be, be reversal of all that opening, um, which then means they, they, they might get a trickle of capital out. Um, they have plenty of reserves. We know that. Three, um, still over three trillion. Three trillion dollars. reserves. There's plenty, you know, even in an administered exchange rate regime, they, they still have some margin of, of maneuver. But ultimately, uh, if the market does believe that the dam breaks, the dam will break. Uh, mm. There's, you know, you know, I don't think they will reverse course and um, and basically close down the cap the, the current account or the capital account rather. Um, that would be too much of a withdrawal from the world markets, um, and they need foreign capital. We know that because they're now running a you know current account deficit. So. It's a uh, they 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 do need the, they do need the access to to world markets. Um, so it sounds like you're saying there's a, a very limited risk of a repeat of the events of 2015-16 when the Chinese currency led to a major downwards move in all global markets. That that's yeah. not a no, central that, scenario. Th yeah, that summer was they bungled it. I mean, they really misjudged uh, the impact of their actions. Uh, now they know <laughs> hmm. uh, their the, the same action. If they bungled the devaluation, would be would have probably a, a, a magnified uh, impact hmm. because their markets are much more open now. So clearly, they're very they're, they're very aware of that. Um, so they won't misjudge it. Um, if they let the currency slide, it's because they need to and because they want to, and it'll be a policy. You know, proper upfront policy decision. And then reading across to other emerging markets currencies, what, what's the view? There? Yeah, so so our view is, and if you ask Fioras, our Asian team, they'll say, well, look, you know, of course the, the yuan couldn't move down, but the question is who, who are much more exposed to, to uh, intra-Asian trade, the, the component providers, and these would be Taiwan, Korea, um, Philippines, and, and, and so on. So there's clearly uh, these currencies are a lot more exposed, in a sense, more nakedly exposed, because uh, China's got a bit domestic economy. There's, they're much more fragile. So for choice, e if you thought that was the fear in the, in the, one, in the Chinese one was overplayed, you'd, you'd go along the one, but you would, you would hedge that with Korean one and Taiwan dollar, Sing dollar, and so on. These are probably the, the, more, uh, the more exposed currencies to proper trade war. Okay, we're almost out of time for this week. Uh, I just made a couple of notes on what Philippe had been saying. The first was that 
both the bond market and the equity market, if you look at sector behaviour within equities, are pointing to a slowish growth outlook with little concern about inflation, and that would support the, the current level of uh, Treasury yields in the US. Uh, the second was there's a lot going on in Europe. Uh, we still have the threat of a risk, political risk arising in Italy, but more broadly, uh, significant numbers of changes to the leadership of the European institutions in the latter part of this year uh, may question some of the certainties we've had in place for a number of years. And then finally, trade wars remain a significant issue. Uh, we, we still think that um, the trade dispute at the moment is a symptom of a broader uh, tension between the US and China, which may take years to play out. So although there may be a short-term apparent resolution, it's not an issue that's going to go away altogether in the foreseeable future. Thank you very much again, Philippe, and thank you very much all for listening.